Well, good morning, Forefront. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. If you're tuning in online, we're so glad that you're with us. If you're new, my name is Drew, and we're just excited as we continue our Advent series as we head towards that special day we're going to celebrate here in a few days of Christmas. If I was to tell you and make the declaration that the decisions that you make in life have the power to impact how you experience life, you probably would agree with me. You probably would not have any problem with me saying that statement. But but what if I was to tell you that actually you have the power yourself to impact not just your life, but the way that the people around you experience their lives? You you know, I was reading an article this week that, that talked about how many decisions we make each day. Now, anybody want to take a guess? How many decisions does someone, does the average person make each day? More or less than a thousand? More, more or less than 10,000, 35,000 decisions a day. Now, who would have guessed 35,000? Anybody? I don't think so. 35,000, that seems crazy. But on average, we make 35,000 decisions a day. Now, thankfully, a lot of those decisions are automatic, right? A lot of those decisions are automatic. You wake up, you turn on the lights, you have your normal routines, right? You take a shower, you brush your teeth, you, you, you know, you try not to squeeze at the top of the toothpaste, right? So you don't get your spouse upset at you later, right? You roll down the window when you drive by a barbecue restaurant. Like those are just automatic things we do. When Travis Kelsey catches a 34-yard touchdown pass in the overtime to score the winning, uh, the, the, for the win, we jump to our feet and scream and yell at the TV, right? These are just automatic things we do. But there's so many things we do in life that just aren't automatic, that cause some, us, us to, to extend a little brain power and make decisions that will impact the way we experience life. Did you know that every day you make 226.7, the .7 is important, decisions on what you're going to eat? It's a lot of decisions to make on what you're going to eat, right? That's why you roll down the window when you drive by the barbecue restaurant, right? It just makes it a lot easier. But we make a lot of decisions. How many of you know you have the power to change your experiences by the decisions you make? When I was in college, my best buddy, Nate, had this giant motivational poster on his wall when you walked in his apartment. And it was a little awkward, you know, it was this like four by four motivational poster of this lighthouse being hit by a storm. Have you guys seen this one before? Right? Some of you may have it at, office, at, at your office or maybe in the, the break room or whatever. But do you notice the person standing at the door of the lighthouse? You ever noticed that before? Now, this guy has no clue what's getting ready to happen, does he? Like this guy's probably drinking his caramel macchiato, looking out on the ocean scene, thinking, wow, what a beautiful day it is. Well, he doesn't know. In about 0.5 seconds, he's going to be hit with his tidal wave, Right? Now, what would you do if you're in that situation? See, that guy right there, believe it or not, can't control the circumstances that happen to him, but what he can control is how he reacts. See, someone someone once said, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond. And so we've been spending this last month, as we lead into Christmas, talking about how do we choose joy? You know, joy is one of those themes of Christmas, right? Joy is one of those, those kind of Advent themes that we talk about that seems kind of abstract and it sounds good and the Bible talks about it, but we really don't experience it. We really don't know what it feels like. Yet deep down, we know we, know, we know we want it. Deep down, there's this thing that we desire and what it really is is it's joy. So we've been making the audacious claim over the last four weeks that you can actually choose to experience joy. And, and we've said that joy is something that's 
outside of our circumstances. That happiness is something that happens to you, but joy is bigger than that. And joy is something that you can actually experience. But we have to learn to stop stealing our own joy. And so we've just talked over and over again about the biggest thieves in your life when it comes to joy is you. And we need to stop the joy thievery. So we've been talking about how we steal joy, and we've been saying things like this. You have to stop stealing your joy by allowing anxiety and worry to overcome you when times are uncertain. That when, when times are uncertain, we obvi- obvi- just jump in automatically into this idea where we get anxious and we get worried and it steals our joy. But how do we do that? We have to choose to find gratitude in, in what we have, gratitude in what's around us. We said a couple weeks ago when, when Pastor Kim Scadam was here that, that when we find out times in our lives when we feel like we're out of control, that lack of control steals our joy. So we have to learn to control the things we can control and give the rest to God, which is really hard to do. But that's making the choice to choose joy. And last week we said that we have to stop comparing ourselves to other people because comparison leads to a thief of joy and a thief of contentment. And so we have to choose to find contentment in the fact that Jesus gives us exactly what we need when we have a little and we have a lot. And then today as we wrap up our series, we're going to talk about the one choice that we have to make to truly experience joy that encompasses all of them together. Maybe the most important decision and choice we can make. The problem is, it's one of those topics that we really don't like to talk about. Because this topic, it's like mentioning the name of the one that shall not be named when you're hanging out with Harry Potter. This is one of those topics that when we talk about it, it seems to pull the air out of the room. Anybody want to guess what we're going to talk about? Anybody got a guess? We're going to talk about how we have to choose to stop allowing our view of money steal our joy. You know, it is interesting when we talk about money. Money is one of those things that we talk about at church, and it does feel like the air just went out, like the balloon got popped. Oh, man, here we go. We're talking about money. And it's Christmas time. I haven't even got my credit card bill yet, and I don't even want to open it when I do. So why are we talking about money now? Can we at least wait till January, please, right? Let's at least make that part of my New Year's resolution to pay off that credit card. But, I, and let's be honest, I don't like to talk about money either. I feel like there's just this weird tension when we talk about money at church. But if we, if we skip it, if we don't talk about it, I feel like, friends, that we are going to miss the greatest way that we can actually learn to experience joy. You, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about our faith. You know, if you, if you look, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you're going to see the Bible has more than 500 verses about prayer. Anybody think prayer is pretty important? I, I think Jesus would say that prayer is very important. The Bible has almost 500 verses that talks about faith. This idea of faith and belief and trust, that's a lot. But the Bible has more than 2,000 verses when it comes to this topic of money. See, Jesus talked about money a lot. 11 out of his 38 parables were about money. Jesus mentioned money a lot. Actually, one out of, it depends on the numbers you see, but one out of about every five or six verses of Jesus in red in your Bibles are about money. Jesus talked about money a lot. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus never took up an offering. Not once. Jesus never looked at his disciples and said, hey, fellas, if I could get that new Cadillac SUV, I could get to Jerusalem a lot quicker, right? But yet Jesus talked so much about money. Why? Because Jesus knew that your view of money and how you feel about money has the impact to grip your heart like nothing else does. Notice what Jesus says about money. 
in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus speaks directly about this idea of how money and how we feel about money and our, our view of money can grip our heart. And that view of money can lead us to a place that's going to pull us off path. It's going to pull us away from where God wants to take us. And that's what he says. He says this. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures where? Where? That was pretty good. Lay up treasures in heaven. Why? What is he? Why? What is this? He says this. Where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart. There your heart's going to be. So what you treasure is tied to your heart. And so Jesus is saying is that if you view money the wrong way, and if you feel about money the wrong way, then it's going to impact everything about you. It's going to grip your heart, and it's going to change the way you view people. It's going to change the way you view your career. It's going to change the way you view your home. It's going to change the way you view yourself. It's going to change the way you view everything. So we have to learn to recalibrate our view of money. Otherwise, it's going to continue to steal our joy. And I think if we just kind of think about our lives, I think, I think we feel it, don't we? I mean, when you think about money, you think about your view towards money, I, I think we, we, we feel that tension. Because let me ask you, when we think about fear over control, what is usually the one thing that causes you to feel like you've lost control? Money. Maybe you don't have enough of it. Maybe you need more of it. Maybe there's a, a shakeup and there's a fear that you're not going to have any of it. And you feel like, man, I've lost control. What, what is that one thing that typically leads you in times of uncertainty to experience anxiety and worry? It's money, isn't it? Often. What, what is the one thing that drives this battle of comparison and contentment that we've been talking about? Isn't it money? And so I think what Jesus is saying is, is, is right. That if we allow money and our view of money, money's not good or bad. Money's amoral. Money's a tool. But if we allow how we feel about money, and how we see money to grip our heart the wrong way, then what it's going to do is it's going to steal our joy every single time. And when it steals our joy, it causes us to close our hands. It causes us to be a little stingy. It causes us to drift to be a little greedy. It causes us to be a little covety. It causes us to be a little scroogey, doesn't it? And so Jesus is trying to teach us that there's something better for us. I love this quote by um, Augustine, the fourth century bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. Augustine says this. He says that God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. So we have to learn to open up our hands is what Jesus is saying. So, so how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, notice what Jesus said. He said we have to not lay up treasure on earth, but we have to put treasure somewhere else. We have to stack treasure somewhere else. And here's what he's getting at. He's saying that we as people tend to fall for this illusion. We tend to buy into the illusion of the when then. You guys know we've been talking about that every week, right? When then. And so we say, when I get enough money, when I have enough of this, then I'll be happy, joyful, content, comfortable, secure. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's the exact opposite. This is the paradox of the gospel Jesus is saying is that when you open up your hands and change your view of money, it's then that you actually feel and experience joy. So here's, here's a big idea for today. 
Jesus is, is and, and we're going to see the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 is going to tell us that, that the greatest way to experience joy, the greatest way for you to experience joy is to live generously. Why? Because when we live generously, we break the grip that money has on our hearts. And that's why choosing to live generously has the impact to change your entire life and the way you view people, places, and yourself. So this morning, I want to go back to kind of our anchor verse we've been for this entire series in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul's talking about how we can have joy. And I want you to see that Paul really gives us the prescription for how we can begin to choose joy in our lives by choosing to live generously. So if you have your Bibles, let's grab those, and we'll open up to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to tackle the verses we read last week and work all the way down to verse 20. So we're going to take a big chunk here right now, verses 10 through 20. Notice what Paul says right here in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly for that, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice what he says in verse 14. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a, sacrificial, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And notice verse 19, and my God will supply every one of your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And as a church, we all said, amen, amen. amen. Paul's words really get at the heart of how we break the grip of an unhealthy view of money in our lives. And so I want to dive into this today. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place that we can come together and we can open up our Bibles together and we can sing these Christmas songs and these, uh, these old-time carols, Lord, that point our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to what you did for us on that very first Christmas. Father, we, we come to you and we ask, Lord, we thank you that we can join together and, and those that tuning in online, can, we can come together and um, we can open your word and ask that you stir up our hearts and help us to see the truth that you have for us and how we can break this grip so we can live joyfully and be the people you've called us to be. So Father, I just want to thank you so much for uh, this the opportunity we have to gather today. And I pray that when we leave, we look more like Jesus than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some of you may not be familiar with Paul's backstory. Paul was, uh, was, a, was a missionary to uh, Greece and many areas in Asia Minor, and, and Paul planted this church in Philippi. And here's a little map of where you can see Philippi. Philippi was actually founded by Philip the Great, Philip from Macedon, Philip from Macedon uh, the father of Alexander the Great. And so it was a small city. It was a military city. And so Paul goes and plants this church in Philippi, and he's there for a while. But then he decides it's time to move on, and he goes, and he has some problems in Philippi. You can read all about in the book of Acts, and he moves on. Then he goes to other cities and starts planting other churches, and we, we see that at, at, at some point, Paul goes back about five years later, and then he goes back again on his way to Jerusalem, where he gets arrested. 
And so Paul's arrested and he stands trial and he, for, and he appeals to Caesar. And for a couple of years, he's in a holding cell. And then Paul gets on a ship. He decides that he's going to go see Caesar. He gets on a ship. He goes to the Mediterranean. He gets broken up by uh, a storm and, and he survives. And he finally makes his way to Rome. And he's under house arrest. And he's actually chained to a guard. And he picks up his pen and he writes this letter. And he writes this letter and he says, hey, church in Philippi, let me tell you, I'm in prison. And you're going through hard times, but you know what? We can all still find joy in Jesus because it's outside of our circumstances. And at the end of this letter, those 10 verses we just read, Paul's basically writing a thank you letter. He's writing a thank you note to the church, and he's thanking them for all that they have done for him. Notice what he said in verse 10. He said this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul says, I was full of joy. I'm in jail, I'm in prison, but I was full of joy because of the gift that you sent I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's talking about the fact that Epaphrodites traveled all the way from Philippi to Rome to bring Paul a care package. And in this, Paul wants to teach us a principle. And the first principle is this, that choosing generosity shifts our priorities. This is what Paul is going to get at here. He's going to show us that choosing generosity actually shifts our priorities. Do you want to find a way to, brick, to break this grip that money can have on us? Paul says we have to actually choose to be generous. It actually comes by making the choice to be generous because it shifts our priorities. See, I don't know about you, but one of the, the things that, that, that I often feel and, and struggle with, I think the tendencies that we often have and, and the fact that we live in a broken world is that our priorities typically go me, 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 you. And, and somewhere in there is my family, right? You know, maybe it's me, 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 family, me, kind of you, right? It's just kind of that natural flow. I was at Chick-fil-A last night, and it was getting late. Courtney and the girls are driving back from Nebraska. And I'm like, I, I want a holy chicken sandwich. You know, it's Saturday night. I feel like I need a little, a, a little spicy chicken in my life. And so I go to Chick-fil-A, and I'm standing in, in, I'm sitting in line. I haven't got to the order window yet, and Courtney calls. And she's like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm kind of at Chick-fil-A right now. She's like, oh, are you getting something for us? And I was like, yeah, of course. I know your guys' order. Don't even tell me what you want. I'll go. I got it. I got it. I'm almost at the window. How many times have we been there, right? Like, just our natural priority is me. Like, the first thing I think about naturally is me. See, Paul's trying to say that we can actually change that, that we can shift that. But it starts with deciding that we have to stop holding on so tight. We have to actually open up our hands. And choosing to be generous does this in our lives. So what's really interesting is this Philippian church, if you think about it, if you want to throw that map back up, up on the, the screen here. This, this Philippian church, it's a military town. Um, but, and if you look down here into the, the lower section, you see Athens and Corinth. Corinth was a very wealthy town. Corinth was a very wealthy town, but the church in Philippi was extremely poor. Very, mili very uh, you know, military-based town. Only, they estimate only 3% of the people that lived in that town had any wealth at all. It was a very blue-collar town. Like I said, a lot of military people. But yet, it was Philippi that Paul uses as the example to show what it looks like to be a generous church. Paul often brags on the church in Philippi. And so notice, Paul's saying that you know, generosity isn't, isn't tied to what you have. Generosity is tied to what you choose to do. It shifts our priorities. I want you to see what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Remember, Corinth was a very wealthy town. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, the Philippians church, very poor, very difficult situation, persecuted, all kinds of terrible things are going on. In a very severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He's saying that because of their generosity, they experienced joy. He experienced joy, but they did. Like they were actually overjoyed to give even though they didn't have much. Why? Because when they chose to give, it shifted their priorities. They put Paul high on their list of things they wanted to do. Why would they do that? I mean, they had needs and they didn't have much. Why would the, why would the church in Philippi choose to be generous to Paul when they really didn't have anything? I think it's this. Because Paul generously gave himself for them when he lived with them and planted the church and served them and cared for them. And because Paul generously gave himself for them, they wanted to generously give back to Paul. See, think, think about a situation in your life where somebody has done something nice for you. Maybe your neighbor, they mowed your lawn for you. Or maybe they shoveled your driveway. Or somebody gave you a gift. Or somebody helped you when you were in a difficult time. Think about that moment. How often do we feel like that tug to do something in return? Like, I think we do, right? I think, I think as, as God's people, we see something nice done for us. It, it kind of stirs us up. We want to do something nice back. This Philippian church had something nice done for them, for Paul. And Paul was a priority in their mind. They wanted to care for Paul. And so out of not having much, they gave a lot to Paul while he was in prison. And so I think this is one of the most beautiful realities we have in the Bible. One of the most beautiful realities we have in God's word is that God generously has given to us. That, that God has come and and given to us so much that we didn't deserve. Isn't that the story of Christmas? That that Jesus stepped into this world for us when we didn't deserve it? Jesus didn't come because we were lovely. Jesus didn't come because we were worthy. Jesus came because of God's generosity. And God wanted to be generous to us. And what God wants us to see because of God's generosity that he came and gave his life for us when we were lost in sin and broken and fractured and he came to make things right? He says, because I did that for you, I want you to learn to be generous too. And so this is this idea of shifting our priorities. And, and here's what I want us to see forefront. When you know Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus and when you say yes to the plan that Jesus has for your life, it shifts your view of people and your view of money. There's this really amazing account in Luke chapter 19 with Jesus, and he's walking through this town called Jericho. And in that town of Jericho, there's a man named Zacchaeus. And we talked about Zacchaeus a few weeks ago. Zacchaeus was a a wee little man, and Zacchaeus climbs in this tree so he can see Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner at your house. And so Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, and they're having dinner. and, And it's in that moment that Zacchaeus sees how he has fallen short and how sin has gripped his life. And Zacchaeus was someone who used people to love money. But when Jesus changed his heart, and when he put his faith in Jesus, it changed Zacchaeus to where he began to use money to love people. And it changed everything about him. And so I think this is the principle that, that Paul wants us to see, that we choose generosity because we see what God has done for us. So here's a question I want us to ask as we kind of navigate the rest of the holiday season and move into the new year. When we look at how we spend our money, and we look at how we feel about our money, what does it tell us about our priorities? What does it tell us about who and what we are putting first? Is it us? Is it others? What do our, the things we treasure tell us about ourselves? So Paul says, 
when we choose generosity, it shifts our priorities. But notice a second what also Paul says. He says this, choosing generosity elevates our passions. Like, like we choose, when we choose generosity, it actually elevates the things that you are passionate about. Look, look what he says here in verse 14. He says this. Paul's writing it to the church again. He's thanking them for this gift they gave. And he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Paul's saying, thank you for sharing with me when I was in a really difficult time. Now, let me ask you, is it easier to share in somebody's good times or in somebody's bad I was out the other day taking the girls out for ice cream, and everybody kind of got what they wanted. And Emma, she got this giant chocolate shake. I'm not sure how she got a giant chocolate shake, but she did. And so Chloe scarfs down her little chocolate sundae or whatever, and then all of a sudden realizes that it would be very kind of Emma to share, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't have any. Emma, you have a large, right? And you're nine. I don't know why you have a large. It's like 1,350 calories. So I think you need to share. And it was this whole thing, right? Stomping and snorting and all kinds of stuff. And because she was upset. Emma, why wouldn't Emma want to share? Do you know where Chloe never wants Emma to share? When she's doing laundry, right? <laughs> Chloe never wants Emma to share when she's taking out the trash or she's feeding the dogs. See, we naturally want to share in other people's good things. But there's something inside of us that says, well, I don't want to share in your bad. Why would I want to do that? That doesn't make any sense. But see, what Paul is saying here is that when we choose to be generous, we break the grip that money has on our heart. And what it does is it elevates the things we're passionate about. Because then we can be passionate about other people. We can be passionate about what God is doing. We can be passionate about things outside of you and outside of me. I think what Paul is saying is this. Forefront, you are never more like Jesus than when you generously Share in other people's trouble. When you generously step in to help other people who are in need. Paul was in need. The Philippian church jumped in and they helped. And again, it's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Because here's the reality. Jesus didn't look down from heaven on us and go, man, they're having a good time. I'm going to go down there and take part in it. He didn't say, wow, those people, they are having a party. Like I need to go experience some of this. This is good. Jesus looked down and said, it's broken. It's a mess. They're in trouble. So I'm going to go step into that. And I'm going to give my life for theirs so they can have life. And I'm going to set them on a path to the good life. And he did it because he's generous. And he, but he chose to be generous for us. And this is the picture the Philippian church has for us. And I, I, I just I want to take a moment. I just want to say, forefront, as I think about this last two years, as we have been in this pandemic, I want to just say it is amazing how God has used you guys to be generous to help people who are in trouble. I can't think of all of the people that we were able to help during the pandemic pay their bills and, and turn their lights on and, and get food and, and buy supplies because of your generosity. You know, last week we, we dropped up all of our Christmas gifts out in the lobby. I mean, you, you just think about it. I don't know if you guys saw that section in the lobby, but it was amazing. I mean, you guys were able to help 63 families this year have a great Christmas because of your generosity. Last year, if you think back to the coat drive, we said, hey, there's families in our community that are cold and need coats, and you filled up boxes of coats in the lobby. There's times when we have seen people's needs, and we as a church have stepped in to share them. I, I think back last year. I shared this story with you guys. I think back last year when we were able to, stay, to, to call Oscar Palencia in building Guate in Guatemala and say, hey, Oscar, 
He had shared with us that they were $120,000 short from being able to, to continue to feed hungry families in Guatemala and care for people during the pandemic. And I was able to call Oscar and say, Oscar, because of the generosity of the people of Forefront, here's a check for $100,000. Now go and be the people God has called you to be. Forefront, we couldn't have done any of that if it wouldn't have been for you in your generosity, because you have a passion for people and you have a passion to care for the things that God cares about. And because you have been generous and chosen to be generous, God has used this little church in Southwest Denver, Colorado to impact families on the other side of the globe. See, when we choose to be generous, it chooses that we break the chains that this unhealthy view of money has on our heart and we elevate our passions. We begin to become passionate about the things that God is passionate about. And at Forefront, let me tell you, it's that type of community that smells like Jesus. It's that type of a community where the world looks and the neighborhood looks and they say, I don't know what it is about those people, but there's something different about them. They look different. They smell different. Something is amazing that's going on there because they're caring for people unlike anything I've ever seen before. See, that's how we shine our light, as Jesus said, to shine the lamp that God gives us to shine our light of hope and truth. Notice what Paul says here. He's talking about this idea of us being, uh, of the church being this community that, that has a passion for what God is doing. And he says this in verse 15. He's talking about how they partner together. And he says that, and you, the, you, the, the Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And what Paul is saying is you guys just continually to generously partner with me and support me. And because of that, churches are being planted. And because of that, people are getting to know Jesus. Earlier this week, Todd and Lori and I were on a, um, a partner's call with the Finishing Fund. And many of you know, but some of you may not, the Finishing Fund is one of our main missionary partners. They send missionary groups to the 1040 window, which is the hard-to-reach, difficult places in Africa and Asia and places in the Middle East and some places in Europe. And what they're doing is they're reaching unengaged, unreached people groups, people that don't know Jesus and have never heard about Jesus and probably don't have a Bible in their language. And so four years ago, God did this amazing thing where he directed us to partner with the Finishing Fund. And over the last four years, I'm gonna, this is mind-blowing. This is, this is crazy. Let me just tell you this. Over the last four years, do you want to know how many unengaged, unreached people groups, not people, people groups were reached because of your generosity to pour into the finishing fund? Let me make sure I get my numbers right. How many people groups were reached? There were 519. 519 groups of people that had never heard the name of Jesus were reached and have believers. You want to know how many people got saved because of this partnership? What's your guess? Anybody want to try to guess? There's no way you're going to guess it. I'm just going to tell you. 476,000 people. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? 476,000 people have put their faith in Jesus through the efforts of the finishing fund. And that is directly tied to the partnership that we have because of the generosity of this church. I mean, are you serious? That is ridiculous that God has allowed us to be a part of that. But God has allowed it because we have chosen to be a part of what God is doing because God has elevated our passions. 
And so forefront, this is what Paul is telling us is that where we put our treasure reveals our heart. And what is in our heart is what we are passionate about. And so if we are going to be passionate about the, God's, the things that God is passionate about, God says we have to choose to be generous and open up our hands to him. Just this beautiful picture. But I want you to notice what else. Notice what Paul says next. He says this. He says that choosing generosity, yeah, it it reshuffles our purposes. Yeah, choosing generosity elevates our passions. But choosing generosity reveals God's purpose. And it reveals God's purpose for you. And it reveals God's purpose for his church. And it reveals God's purpose for his world. Notice what Paul says here in verse 17. He says this. He says that, thank you for sharing in my trouble. Thank you for partnering with me. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And he goes on to say that I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphrodites this gift you sent, which is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you guys hear what he said? He, he says that, that when we give generously, when we choose to give, God changes our, our priorities and our passions, but it reveals God's purpose. You know, if you had to think about what's the greatest asset you own, what would it be? Some of you who bought your house between, before 2013, you guys, it's your house, right? You guys are like, yeah, <laughs> I bought it at the right time. Unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't, right? We bought in the pandemic. But the rest of you guys, if you bought in 2013, you guys are doing good. Some of you guys might say, my greatest asset is that chemistry textbook I have, because that thing's worth like 89, 90 bucks. You know, I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. All, all of us, we have something of, of value. I want you to see what... Paul is saying that the greatest thing that we could ever invest in is God, and it's God's kingdom, and it's God's purpose. He says that there's this beautiful thing going on that when we give to God, because when we give to God, we choose to give generously to God, God actually gives back to us, and God actually credits it to our account in an accounting term. Now, I think there's this tension that exists, though, that we have to embrace. Because on, on one hand, we say, well, I should want to give generously. I choose to be generous because God has been generous to me, right? And I don't want anything in return. But on the other hand, there's this tension that we see in the Bible where God is telling us that when, when we give, God's revealing his purpose back to us because he wants to bless us. That actually, when, when we give, God blesses us back. And it feels a little weird to even say that, right? We should just say, hey, let's give. Let's just be generous to give to God and then not ask for anything back. But God says, I want to bless you in return. Notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. It's really interesting. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says this. Jesus says, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that God has a purpose for your life. He has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for you, and he has a purpose for your family. God has a purpose for your kids. God has a purpose for your workplace. God has a purpose for your neighborhood. God has a purpose for this church. God has a purpose for the people living in Africa and Asia and the Middle East that haven't heard about Jesus yet. God has a purpose. And when we choose to be generous to give to his purpose, he reveals his purpose back to us. And he blesses us back in return. It's hard to kind of get our minds around that, but, but notice that, that, that promise that, that, that he says to us. He says that when we open up our hands, God fills them back up. It's like what Augustine said earlier, right? Like God wants to give us a lot of things, but our hands are too full to receive them. So he's saying the way you receive what God has to give to you is you have to actually open up 
your hands. Notice in verse 19, he says that, and when you do, when you choose to be generous, God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know what this looks like. This could be different for all of us. For some of it, it could be blessing. It could be financial. It could be health. It could be new opportunities. It could be new relationships for others. It's this promise, this eternal hope we have because we've laid up treasure in heaven. But what Jesus and Paul both say is that when we open up our hands and give to God, God fills them right back up. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says that God has a way of giving by the cartload to those who give away shovelfuls. There was a recent study done by um, a group called Ascent, and they studied 1,000 people. And what they were looking at is they were trying to identify, is there any characteristical changes to a person's life when they become generous? Like what happens to somebody once they choose to be generous? And so they studied 1,000 people, and they found some really fascinating things. And I just want to share a couple with you. Here's what they found. They found that people who, who live generously, who true, choose to be generous, find that they have more meaning in life, that they have purpose, that they have closer relationships. Now listen to this. Listen to this. The people that choose generosity, they found, are grateful, are content, and are happier, more joyful all because they've chosen to be generous. So I think, church, what Paul is trying to say to us is this, is that the choice, the simple choice to break the grip that money has on your heart will change everything about your life. And it will redirect your heart to see the value and the purpose and priority and the passion that God has for your life, and that you can never truly be the person, the man, the woman that God has called you to be until you break the grip of the wrong view of money on your heart. And something powerful happens when we give joy away. But what we have to realize, forefront, is that God's not going to force this on us, that God's not going to make you do this, that God is going to give you the decision and let you be the one to choose. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to invite the band back on forward as we close. Here's what Paul says. He says this. The point is this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Did you catch what Paul said? Paul says this, that he's, God's not going to make you do this. God's going to allow you to keep trying to wrap your hands and close your hands and hold tight to what you have. And at the end of the day, you're going to find out that you're experiencing a lack of joy. At the end of the day, you're going to find yourself back in the win-then trap. And it's never going to take you where you want to go or where God wants you to go. But what Paul says is that when we make the choice in our heart, to be cheerful. To be, and the word cheerful actually is hilarion. It means hilarious. To be hilarious givers. To realize that we're, we, this is, we don't own this stuff. This is God's stuff. And we're going to put it in God's hands. Whether we have a little, we have a lot, but we're going to put it in God's hands. God will use that to change your life because you've decided to give joy away. And notice how Paul ends th this text in Philippians 4. He says, when we do this, when we choose to be generous, we actually give glory to God. He says this. He says to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.
When we choose to be God's people, God gets the glory. And that's the way it should be. See, that, that, that dark night out in the field when the angels were tending to their flocks and the, or the shepherds were tending to their flocks and the angels came out and they, they told the shepherds that night, that first Christmas, that good news of great joy has come to all the people. What they were saying is that in Christmas, God is showing his generosity to us because his son, Jesus, has come for us. And he is here for us. That he is going to bring us joy and peace and love and hope. But we have to choose to accept it. And we have to choose to follow him. And when we take communion together, when, when we come to the table together, and we see the, the, the bread and, and the, the, the juice or the styrofoam cracker and the juice. It's a picture and a reminder of the generosity that God has shown us. Because what, what we see when we come together and we take communion as a, as a church is we see that God is saying, I came for you to give my body for you and to shed my blood for you so that you can generously have life. You know, the, the night that Jesus was arrested, he had dinner with his disciples. And at the end of dinner, he took a loaf of bread and he, he broke it and he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said that every time you do this, do this to remember me, to remember what I'm getting ready to do, to remember the generosity that I have shown you. So if you want to go ahead and start working on the top of your, your cup there, it takes an extra second. But that night, yeah, Jesus took that bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body. This is the picture of the generosity I'm going to show you by going to the cross for you so you can have life. He said, every time you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. So forefront, let's remember what Jesus did for us. And after dinner, Jesus took a cup. He filled it with wine and he passed it around. He said, this cup, this wine, this juice, it's the picture of what I'm gonna do for you on the cross where my blood's gonna go and life is gonna come. He said, every time you drink that cup, remember my generosity and do it in remembrance of me. So forefront, as we remember what Jesus did for us and God's generosity, as we approach Christmas Day and we move into this new year of 2022 and what it's gonna hold and the uncertainty in front of us, Let's choose joy. And I want to ask this question. I want to leave this with you just to ponder. How do we take that next step in becoming generous like Jesus? Because Jesus was so generous to us. Forefront, will you pray with me?